So now if you will turn with me in your Bible to the Old Testament, uh, the book of 1 Samuel, we find ourselves in, in chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. You'll recall that 1 Samuel uh, is a book describing events that took place a thousand years before the birth of Christ. The words were written down sometime between 900 and 600 years before the time of Jesus. And it describes three primary characters. Uh, Samuel, the final judge of Israel from the period of the judges that is described in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. And then Saul, the first king. And then David, the, the great king, the man after God's own heart. And two weeks ago, we, we talked about how we begin in a surprising place, that we begin with an ordinary man, an ordinary woman from an ordinary place, and God's faithfulness to her, this upside-down kingdom of God, exalting the lowly, humbling the proud. And I wasn't here last week, but I know that Jonathan uh, led you through uh, the end of chapter 2, where we see the, the spiritual condition of Israel at this time, that they were in spiritual shambles because the very tabernacle where Israel would go up to worship had a priest who wasn't holding his sons accountable, that his sons, uh, priests at the temple, were uh, engaged in sexual sin at the temple. Um, they were engaged in profaning the sacrifices of God. And so you saw last week how God promised to bring judgment on the high priest Eli and on his house to reject the house of Eli forever. But now in chapter 3, we return again to Samuel, this young boy who is dedicated to the Lord's service, growing up at the tabernacle in Shiloh. So again, this is 1 Samuel chapter 3, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did, did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. 
and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again, the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and he hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come desiring to hear your voice speaking in your word. Lord, we join Samuel in saying, speak for your servant hears that we want to hear you. We don't want to mistake the word of God for the word of man. But we want to hear your word and respond in faith, trust, and obedience. So we pray for grace today. In 
Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at our text today, you'll notice that this phrase, the word of God, appears several times. Even the the final verse in, in verse 21, it says that the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And we talk a lot about the word of God, the word of the Lord in church. After the reading of scripture, we say this is the word of God. We talk about the ministry of word and sacrament. We talk about sitting under the word rather than over the word, of studying the word individually. The the word of God is central to the life of God's people. But then the question is, how do we understand the word of God? How do we think about the word of God biblically? That's what we're going to explore today from this text. I'm going to offer five observations about the word of God as we walk section by section through this chapter. So here's the first observation about the word of God. God's word can be hard to find. God's word can be hard to find. Look again at verse 1 in your Bible. He says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So what is this talking about? What does it mean to say that the word of the Lord was rare, that there was no frequent vision? And it's important to remember that at this point in redemptive history, they had almost none of the Bible. Uh, They had five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. They had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They may have had the book of Job, but there's speculation about that. But we have so much in terms of written scripture that they lacked. They knew the stories of God's faithfulness bringing Israel into the land of Canaan through the hand of Joshua. They knew the the stories of God's faithfulness through judges in their recent history, like Samson delivering his people, but they didn't yet have written accounts of those events. So in that sense, the word of the Lord was rare. But then also, God would make provision for the people, that he would send prophets, living prophets, to proclaim God's word to God's people. And so some of the the gaps were, were filled in through that direct line of communication from God's prophet. But but at times God would withhold prophetic vision from his people as an act of judgment. And you see this described in the book of Amos, chapter 8, verse 11. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
And so there are two types of, of famine. There's the, the literal famine of bread where you don't have food to eat. But then there's the, the spiritual famine. And we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so when there is a spiritual famine, that, that the life-giving word of God is withheld. It's judgment on the people for sin. And that's what we see here in this text in verse 1, that the word of the Lord was rare in those days because of the rampant wickedness and sin of the people at the end of the period described in the book of Judges. But we've seen this throughout redemptive history, this famine of the word of God. We see it here in the text. We, we see it at the time of Amos, as I mentioned. There was a famine of the, the word of God between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Um, I remember in college that the pastor told, said to write the word, to write 400 years in the period between your Old Testament and your New Testament in your Bible. Because there was 400 years of prophetic silence between Malachi and John the Baptist coming on the scene. And people said, where is God? That there was a famine, a thirst for the word of God. But even after the time of the New Testament, you can think of the, the high medieval period in Europe. Uh, that in a sense, Christianity was dominant, but the people didn't have the word of God in a language that they could understand. Uh, the Bible was in Latin, which very few people spoke. Uh, the gospel itself had been almost lost to history, where uh, it, was, it was frequently not taught, not preached, not held up uh, for the people. It was a famine of the word of God. And by his grace and mercy, God broke that famine in the Protestant Reformation, where the Bible was, was translated, where the, you began to have preaching uh, in, in churches preaching the true gospel of salvation by grace, that, that this famine was ended. But then we can think about our own time. Can we say that the word of God is rare in our time? Well, in one sense, the answer is no, because we have countless excellent Bible translations that we can read in our own language. We have unprecedented access to the word of God in the, the completed canon that they didn't have at that time. So we're not expecting a, a prophet to speak anymore because we have the, the 66 books of the Old and the New Testament. We have Bibles that can be printed in a, in a way that is inexpensive so that we can have Bibles that we can carry with us to, to church. We have Bibles on our phones, on our devices, that we have so much access to the word of God. But yet I can still say that the word of the Lord is rare in our time. That it can be a sign of God's judgment to withhold it. I know people who live in communities, even in our country, where it's hard to find a gospel preaching church. Where there are churches that may teach a prosperity gospel or churches that may deny the authority of scripture. But to find a gospel that believes in the authority of the Bible, it's faithfully teaching the gospel, that it can be rare. Or you turn on TV and, and you go to TBN and you, you watch uh, Christian teachers, and quite often you're not hearing the true, faithful, biblical gospel that you're hearing at the counterfeit gospel 
that says that if you follow Jesus, you're going to be happy and wealthy in this life, that God will give you the best life now, that the, the word of God can be rare in our time. So that's the, the first observation about the word of God. It can be hard to find. But then here's the, the second observation about the word of God. The word of God can be hard to discern, can be hard to discern. And this is what we see in verse 2 to 10 in our text. So look with me in your Bible at verse 2. It says that at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had become begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So try to visualize what's going on here. Remember, it's using the word temple, but it's not talking about the, the temple of Solomon that would be built in Jerusalem, that this is the, the temple structure of the tabernacle that was at Shiloh, and actually, I'm sure that Tess and Bell in their study Bibles have a beautiful picture of the tabernacle <laughs> that you can look at in the book of Exodus. Or if you have a study Bible that, that has a, a picture of this tabernacle structure where you had the outer court called the holy the, the courtyard with the altar in the middle uh, you, where they would offer sacrifice. And as you entered into the tent, you would have the holy place uh, with an altar to burn incense. And there were lampstands on the side representing the, the presence of the Spirit of God. And then there was the great veil into the most holy place where the, the Ark of the Covenant was located, holding the Ten Commandments, the manna, the staff of Aaron that budded. Uh, and only the high priest would enter into the, the most holy place on the Day of Atonement with blood sacrifice. But then here it says that this young boy, Samuel, is sleeping in the holy place of the temple. And at first that may seem confusing. What was he doing sleeping in the holy place? Uh, and we, we can understand that, actually, if we turn back to the book of Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 27, where God gives detailed instructions for how Israel was to build the tabernacle. And it talks about these lamps that were placed in the holy place. It says in Exodus 27, verse 20, that you shall command the people of Israel that they bring you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. And the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, talking about the Ark of the Covenant, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout your generations by the people of Israel. So it's saying that it was the responsibility of Aaron, the high priest, and his sons to keep the olive oil in the lamps in the holy place burning, it says, from evening to morning throughout the night. And it was to be um, a, a very important work of the worship of Israel. And so that's what Samuel is doing. He is, in a sense, an adopted son of the high priest. 
that he is fulfilling the role of sleeping in the holy place to keep the lamps burning before the veil into the most holy place where the tabernacle is located, where the, the Ark of the Covenant. And so now you have the, the image in your head, and you can see these three calls of the Lord. The first call, turning back to 1 Samuel 3, we see the first call in verse 4 to 5. The Lord calls Samuel, and he hears an audible voice, and he assumes that Eli is calling him. So he gets up, and he runs, it says, to Eli and says, here I am. And then Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. And he goes and he lays down again in the holy place. And then a second time, the Lord calls him. Samuel, and he gets up, and he runs to Eli a second time, and Eli says, no, I didn't call you. Go back to your place. Then there's a fascinating note in verse 7, in the second call. It says, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the, the, the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And notice that's exactly what it says in chapter 2, verse 12, about the wicked sons of Eli, it says that they did not know the Lord. So this is saying that Samuel didn't have a true living faith in God at this point. That he was following the pattern of Eli's biological wicked sons in the sense that he did not know the Lord. And that doesn't mean that he didn't know facts about God. He was in the very space where the scrolls were kept of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He was close to the word of God. He was close to the holy presence of God in the most holy place. He was near to the Ten Commandments that God had written with his own fingers on stone. He knew more about God than almost anyone else in Israel at this time. But then it says that he didn't know the Lord. And that's important for us to remember this morning, that we can be very close to the things of God without knowing God. That we can, we can come to church, we can read the Bible, that we can serve the church faithfully, just like he was serving the, the worship of God at the tabernacle. But we can have this without a true personal knowledge of God. And so the call is always to pray for that, Lord, I want to know you, not just to know about you, but to know you personally. So that's the, the second call. But then there's the third call where he goes back to his place, he lays down again, and he hears the call, Samuel, Samuel. In verse 8 and 9, he runs to Eli again. And at this point, I could imagine Eli getting a little bit frustrated. Um, that if you're a parent, you may have the experience of children waking you up repeatedly throughout the night. But then Eli, he says that he is physically blind, but he's also somewhat spiritually blind. That it, there, the word of God was rare in those days. 
that he wasn't thinking spiritually. But then even for Eli, with his physical and spiritual blindness, that it begins to dawn on him. He begins to discern the word of God. And he says, maybe God is speaking to this child. He says, go back to your place, lie down again. And when you hear the voice, say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And then you see the final and fourth call of God in verse 10. It says that the Lord came and stood. God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. But yet God stands before him. Maybe this was a Christophany, a, a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. We don't know. And with some sense in a vision, he sees a, a physical presence of God with him, calling out, Samuel, Samuel. And then Samuel says, speak, for your servant hears. And that's such a wonderful prayer that for, for all of us, when we, when we come to the word of God, to remember this, this simple prayer of a child encountering God in a relational, personal way for the first time to say, speak for your servant hears. And that's a wonderful prayer when you sit down with your Bible for your own quiet time just to pray, Lord, speak for your servant hears. Before you hear the word of God read in church, pray to yourself, Lord, speak for your servant hears. Or before you, you hear the preaching of the word, to, to have ears that are tuned to the, the frequency of God speaking to us, that, that the receiver is ready to hear the word of God that comes to us in the scripture that is the word of God. Because often the word of God is, is hard to discern, that we can confuse it for the word of, of man, but that we can pray for a soft heart with a spiritual sensitivity to hear God's word. So we've said that God's word can be hard to find. It can be hard to discern. But then third, the word of God can be hard to hear. And this is what we see in verse 11 to 14 in our text. Because we think, I, I would love God to speak to me, uh, to open up his word to me. And I'm struck how in, in children's Bibles, this story is often present uh, because it's a wonderful story for children to say, to be listening to God's word, to, to hear the voice of God. Uh, also, just even though he didn't know the Lord, you can sense an eagerness to serve Eli, that he runs each time. He doesn't pretend to be asleep so that um, Eli has to keep calling, but he is very quick to respond. So there's so many wonderful applications. But often, children's Bibles will leave off what God actually says because it's not what we expect. When God speaks, what does it sound like? And look in your, your Bible at verse 11. God finally speaks, so this is what he says. Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And then he goes on to recount the judgment that will fall on the house of Eli because he knew that his sins were defiling the sacrifices of God. They were blaspheming God, and yet he did not restrain 
them. So judgment will fall on Eli and his house. And it says that sacrifice shall not atone for it forever. And I think that this is significant for us here this morning, that, that we pray for God to speak in his word. But sometimes when we actually pay attention to his word, we don't like what we hear, that it can be hard to hear. That he hears this message of judgment on the house of Eli, but as you read the Bible, you see a message of judgment on the whole world. And you see it prefigured in God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, God's judgment on Israel, sending them into captivity in Babylon. But then you read even the New Testament. Jesus describes judgment in Matthews 24 and 25. You see it in the letters of Paul, especially 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You see it in the book of Jude, the book of 2 Peter, and ultimately in the book of Revelation, where you see the Son of God treading the winepress of the wrath of God, the judgment of God against sin, wickedness, because the wages of sin is death. God is holy. He holds sin accountable. So the question then is, how do we escape the judgment of God? And that's the good news that we have here today that Samuel didn't even hear at this point in redemptive history, that that we know that ultimately sin will be judged one way or another. Our sin will be judged. And the question is, will it be judged on the final day when Christ comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead? Or will it be judged on the cross where Jesus takes the wrath of God in our place? And so as we repent and trust in Jesus, that 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 judgment of God against us and our sin is taken upon Jesus. He bears it in our place so that as we repent and trust in Jesus that we can experience forgiveness and life and hope. But again, we've said that the word of God can be hard to find, hard to discern, hard to hear. But the next, the word of God can be hard to share. Hard to share. We see this in verse 15 through verse 17. Look at what happens in verse 15 of our text. It says, Samuel lay until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. And I think that's very understandable because he, he just got this fiery message of judgment against Eli and his house, And then the guy who the message was against comes to him and says, tell me what God said to you. And I appreciate the fact that it says he was afraid. Because for the prophets in the Old Testament, it's not that they were some kind of superhuman people who face no fear. That there there were two challenges for the prophet. They both had to hear the word of God, but then they also had to proclaim the word of God, which sometimes was a message of mercy and forgiveness and grace. But then sometimes it would come in the form of words of judgment. And people don't respond well to those words of of judgment. That's why Jeremiah got beat up, thrown in a pit, that he was abused and mistreated throughout his ministry because people didn't want to hear 
words of judgment through the mouth of the prophet. So he's afraid. But then uh, Eli threatens him a little bit. Uh, he, he uses an, an oath formula of the time. He says, my son, he says, what is it he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and to more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. Uh, which is a formulaic way of saying basically, may God bring his judgment on you if you don't tell me this. And Samuel responds and, and he proclaims the word of God. He, he doesn't leave anything hidden from what God had said. And I think this is helpful for us here today as well, because as believers, we are recipients of the word of God. We read the word of God. We study the word of God. And there are hard truths and hard realities in the pages of the Bible. And there can be a sense of fear that we don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to say that the, the wages of sin is death. We don't want to say that God is a holy and a righteous God who will hold sin accountable. We don't want to talk about the, the exclusivity of Christ, that there's a temptation to, to shrink back. But the call then is to pray for grace, to say, Lord, let me be bold. Let me remember that it's not my word, but it's it's your word, that, that I'm a messenger delivering the message of God and the call is to be faithful, to be accurate in that message. Because what we have is, yes, a message of bad news, of sin and judgment, but then ultimately we have the message of good news that answers the bad news, that is the good news of the gospel that comes to us. But people can never understand the good news of the gospel if they don't understand the bad news of sin and our condition apart from the grace of God. So again... The word of God can be hard to find, hard to discern, hard to hear, hard to share. But then finally, the word of God can be hard to accept. The word of God can be hard to accept. You see this in verse 18 in your Bible. It says, so Samuel told him everything, hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So in one sense, Eli seems to accept the word of God, that he responds with a degree of humility. He doesn't rage against God. He doesn't say that he hates God, that he wants nothing to do with God, or that he doesn't believe in God, that he recognizes the complete sovereignty and freedom of God to do what he wants. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good good to him. So in that sense, he is a good example of how to accept the word of God, even if it is a difficult word that holds us accountable. But I actually see it still as a negative example. And I don't think he fully accepts the word of God. And because we can see other examples of messages of judgment coming and how people react in a different way than he reacts here in this text. So think of Nineveh in Jonah chapter 3. You know the story. Jonah is told to go to preach in Nineveh. He runs away from the presence of the Lord. He gets swallowed by the fish, spit out on the dry ground. He goes to Nineveh, and he proclaims a message of judgment as a prophet of God. 
in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So he's predicting God's decisive judgment against their sin. But how does the city of Nineveh respond to a message of certain judgment in 40 days? That their response is sackcloth and ashes. They declare repentance. They, they deal with their sin. They, they put away their, their idols. That they, they turn to the Lord and plead for his mercy that the judgment of God could be turned back. And you remember that God responds to that. He spares the city. And Jonah's mad about it because he wanted to see the city destroyed. But they humble themselves before the Lord of God, the word of God. But Eli doesn't do that. He doesn't plead for mercy. He doesn't go then remove his sons and their wickedness that day and what they were doing in the tabernacle. He lets them continue in their sin. Or you can think of Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 20. He's one of the great kings of Israel. And then in chapter 20 of 2 Kings, the prophet Isaiah comes to him. And he says, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and you shall not recover. And then how does Hezekiah respond? He doesn't say, well, it is the Lord. He will do what he wills and then go on with no action in his life that he responds in tears and weeping. It says he turns his face to the wall, crying to the Lord to deliver him. And then before Isaiah gets out of the palace, God speaks to the prophet. He comes right back in and tells him that the judgment of God has been turned back, that God is merciful, and that he will have another 15 years to rule, and that God will deliver him from the hand of the Assyrians. So then how can we learn here how to accept God's word? What is our response to the word of God? That when we hear the difficult words of the Bible, the call is not to reject God altogether and want nothing to do with God. The call is not even just to say, well, it's the Lord, I'm going to resign myself to his holy will. But the call is repentance, to, to know the mercy of God, to, to put our faith and trust in the, the promise that is held out for us in Jesus. Because we talk at our church about the word of God, the written word. But in John chapter 1, it talks about the eternal word of God that became flesh and, and dwelt among us. That the word of God walked among us. And just as the text says that Samuel spoke in such a way that not a word fell to the ground. That the Lord established the word of the eternal word incarnate throughout his ministry in his life. And our call is to look to him, the eternal word, his perfect life, sacrificial death, to hear that call, to discern God's voice speaking to us, to know the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want to hear your word today. But Lord, we know that when your word comes, it's not always what we expect, that it causes our ears to tingle. It could be surprising. It could be hard to bear. So Father, give us hearts of, of humility. Lord, we again say, speak for your servants here. And as Lord, as we hear the, the promise of your righteous, holy, just judgment that you will bring on the world, Lord, we want to flee 
to the only safe refuge. We want to, to, to be on the, the rock in the midst of the flood, the rock of Christ. We want to be in the, the ark when the, the flood comes upon the whole world, the floods of judgment. And we know that the, the ark is Christ, Lord. We, we want to, to have the living water out of the, the rock, and that rock is Christ. We, we want to hear you speak to us, to be present. We know that it is the word of Christ that, that comes to us in the gospel, Lord. We, we look to him alone. We pray that we can not fall into the trap of being like the sons of Eli who were close to God but didn't know him, that we would be near to you and we would know you personally in repentance and faith all the days of our life. We pray this in